invite you to open up to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 28. Samuel 28. I'll be reading beginning in verse 3 of 1 Samuel 28. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together and they camped in Gilboa. And when Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by the Urim or by prophets. And then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes, and he went, and, and he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land? Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? Saul bowed to her by the Lord, saying, If the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he's wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me. And God has departed from me and no longer answers me, neither through prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have called you up, that you may make known to me what I should do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? The Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me, for, out, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, to David. As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you today. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of the Philistines into the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. And Saul immediately fell full length upon the ground and was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. Also, there was, there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was terrified and said to him, Behold, your maidservant has obeyed you. And I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to your words which you spoke to me. So now also please listen to the voice of your maidservant. And let me set a piece of bread before you that you may eat and have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. However, his servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to them. So he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly slaughtered it. 
And she took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread from it. And she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And then they arose and went away that night. Father, give us insight and understanding as to why this story is in the scripture and what it means for us. And help us to understand as we look into oftentimes confusing things, Lord. We pray your Holy Spirit would speak to us and through your word this morning and reach into our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatsoever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it. And Scrooge's name was as good upon the exchange for anything he put his hand to. Old Marley was dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know of my knowledge what is particularly dead about a doornail. I've been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade, but the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, or the country's done for. You will, therefore, permit me to repeat emphatically that Marley was as dead as a doornail. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. The opening lines of Charles Dickens' classic story, A Christmas Carol, can easily be adapted to our story this morning. In fact, when I sat down to study and I looked at verse 3 and the first four words are now, Samuel was dead, I'm like, I just read this the other evening with my kids. (laughs) Samuel was dead to begin with. There's no doubt that Samuel was dead. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. And it's true. For us to completely buy into and understand what's happening in 1 Samuel 28, we have to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Samuel was dead. If you look back at chapter 25, verse 1, we're told that Samuel died. And all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down into the wilderness of Paran. We've already heard it once. Now we hear it again in verse 3 of chapter 28. Samuel was dead and all Israel had lamented him and buried him. The author, the Holy Spirit, wants you to be certain of that point. Samuel was dead. Repeating this twice, this idea here is that Samuel is called up from beyond the grave and it's intriguing. It's intriguing partially because we are into ghost stories. People in our culture, there's something fun, there's something uh, strange about it. And so we will be intrigued by the... It amazes me, by the way, that a Christmas carol is a Christmas story because it is a ghost story. You think it would be more appropriate earlier in the fall. And yet it's kind of a beloved tale that many of us watch in two or three different versions throughout the Christmas holiday season. But if there's anything that captures the attention of people... It's ghost stories. It's the idea of the afterlife and what might possibly happen after a person dies. Why is it that way? Talking with my kids just last week, we, we had this conversation. Why is it that people think about these things? It's because the Bible tells us, Ecclesiastes 3.11, that he has made everything appropriate in its time and he has also set eternity in the hearts of man. There is a sense among all of us, Christian, atheist, agnostic, all people alike, there is a sense in us of more than this. Because God has set eternity in our hearts. 
God has given us that, that understanding that there's something else. There's something more. Unfortunately, in our world, a lot of times people will kind of cast off Christianity. And the obvious answer, and the beautiful answer given to us in Scripture, for other more confusing, morbid, strange things, like necromancy. And necromancy is exactly what's happening in our story today. Necromancy is the calling up of the dead. This woman is a medium, a spiritist, a witch. And her role is to call up the dead. That's, that's what she does. That's what she gets paid for. Although she shouldn't while she's in Israel because Saul had driven all of the people out. But let's me, be very clear what the Lord thinks about these sorts of things. Witchcraft, necromancy, spiritism, all these things. Leviticus 19.31 says, Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 6, says, As for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists, to play the harlot after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Leviticus 20, verse 27, Now a man or a woman who is a medium or a spiritist shall surely be put to death. God is serious about this. You are not to mess with these things. If you have your uh, Bibles open there, turn back to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9, where the Lord is even more instructive in this area and gives more reasoning behind this idea of forbidding spiritism or mediums or palm readers or this type of thing. He says in verse 9, Deuteronomy 18, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, as in the worship of Molech. Or one who uses divination, or one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead, necromancy. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord because of these detestable things the Lord your God will drive them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. In fact, going on to the next verse says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. And that prophet eventually would be Jesus Christ. Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah, would be the prophet like Moses from among the countrymen. And the Lord says, here's why you don't listen to spiritists. Here's why you don't read your horoscope. Here's why you don't go to a palm reader and play games with stuff like that. Because you are to listen to Jesus. You are to run to Jesus Christ. You're not to seek the future from, from man trying to call up the dead because all that is is deception. And you will not get the real story. The Lord made the prohibition and the punishment of these things absolutely clear to the children of Israel. But it's not just an Old Testament concern. You see, God is consistent. I saw again uh, something just the other day uh, for pastors. It was a Christmas card that was sent out. And the phrase on it by this, there's a group that, that kind of does ministry to pastors and, and cares for pastors, which is a wonderful thing. But in this card that they sent out, it has a sentence in it that we want to, in their uh, mission statement, we want to bless all pastors of New Testament churches. 
And I grew up in a church that called itself a New Testament church. I no longer think of myself as a New Testament Christian. I think of myself as a follower of Jesus Christ, who is in the Old Testament just as much as he's in the New Testament. The entire scripture, the entire Bible points us toward Jesus. I'm not just in one section. For this reason, when I walk around, I try and carry my whole Bible. I don't, you know, the little New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs that, that have been printed up and those get passed out sometimes. I don't carry that because I figure, well, what if I need a verse from, from the Hebrew Scriptures? It's the whole Word of God that we are interested in, not just a partial word. And the New Testament does not deny the Old. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers and immoral persons, and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. God is fully and wholly consistent from beginning to end. He doesn't change his mind once you get to the New Testament. And so we can look to the Old Testament, as we've been doing, studying through it, we can look and see and understand God's feelings about things. And when the Lord says something is detestable in the Hebrew Scriptures, guess what? It's detestable in the Greek Scriptures as well. It doesn't change as far as the heart of God is concerned. But why are these things detestable? Obviously we're supposed to go to Jesus, but what's the big deal? Did God just develop an arbitrary uh, set of offenses and abominations before He created the world? Did He just sit up there and go, let me see, what can I tell them that they're going to have to do, and what can I not allow them to do, and how can I kind of squeeze them into following me a certain way so that I have full cosmic control over them? Did God say, I don't want them going to spiritists and mediums because they might find something out that I don't want them to know. I don't think so. The Golden Compass movie that's out. I don't know if any of you have seen it. I haven't seen it myself, but it represents that kind of God. The kind of God who would lie. The the main character of God, the representation of God in this three-book trilogy, the first of which is now a movie, is a God who lies and deceives. And eventually, in the end of the third book, is killed by the heroes of the book. And there are a lot of people who have that perspective of God in the world and it is completely off. God's concern is not for Himself. The Lord's concern is for us. Which is a stunning statement in and of itself. But the grand creator of all things, the majesty on high, is concerned for you and for me. And in this concern... We are told in 1 Timothy 4.1 The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.21 You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. 2 Corinthians 11.14 Paul writes Satan disguises himself as an angel of light therefore it is not surprising if his servants demons also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds and the Lord says in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 19 when they say to you consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter should not a people consult their God? I love that line. Should not a people consult their God? You want to go through someone else when you can come to me? He says, should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. 
They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their god as they face upward. Shaking their hands at the heavens. That's the picture we're given. And then they will look to the earth, and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Now hear me on this. Witchcraft and spiritism and the like are not bad because they're forbidden. They're forbidden because they're bad. It's a careful distinction there. There are a lot of people who think that that there are things that are just forbidden. God says they're bad because I've forbidden them and that's the end of the story. It's not the case. God forbids things that are bad for us, that are harmful for us. He calls things sin that hurt us, that separate us from Him. That's why the Lord lays out the prescriptions in Scripture that we have. Anything, by the way, of a spiritual nature that does not recognize the absolute truth and goodness of Jesus Christ opens the doors to deception. Anytime we step out of that area of the the covering of Jesus, we open the door to deception. John says in 1 John 4, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming. And John says 2,000 years ago, and now is already in the world. What does that mean? That means the spirit of Antichrist was loose 2,000 years ago and has been loose over these 2,000 years. And ultimately, one day, because the Bible tells us very clearly, Antichrist will be a man. Revelation says the number 666, understand this, it's the number of a man. It will be a guy who rises up. The Bible describes a world leader who has the ability to a great oration and great respect and he has great answers and people will think of him as the man of peace and it will be a human being. But the spirit of Antichrist who is at work in the world and has been since the time of John, as he spoke, will enter into this man. And he will become demon-possessed, antichrist-possessed. I don't have time to go all into that, but if you want to talk about that, stop me. We'll have that conversation. But what's scary to me, and I've read this actually before to you, this quote from the book Fast Facts on False Teachings by Carlson and Decker, which is a great book to have on your shelf just to be able to refer to things. Because we have a lot of deception going about in the world today. A lot of people calling themselves church or Christians who truly are not. And we are called to be aware because we're told this is a sign of the last days that you will see this, that there will be deception. We'll talk more about some of that deception next Sunday. But Carlson and Decker write the following. Some 50 to 60 million Americans are involved in some form of the occult today. Over 50 million Americans read their horoscopes every morning which can be found in virtually every newspaper across the country. It's some kind of seemingly harmless thing. Well, according to the Lord's word, it's an abomination. It's detestable to him. A lot of things in our newspapers are detestable, I'm sure, to the Lord. People are involved with fortune telling, tarot cards, palm reading, numerology, and people openly engage in witchcraft, Satanism, spiritism, and New Age channeling. And enlightened people and evolved people walking in the dark. And we seem to see mankind going more and more after the dark as we increase in our intellectual capabilities and our arrogance. And Saul knew full well God's commands against such dark deception. He knew it, he understood it, he actually did a good thing. 
we, we read in this chapter that, that he had removed, verse 3, all the spiritists and mediums from the land. In response to the law of God, Saul had driven them out. Well, good for you, Saul. Way to go. Good job. I'm proud of you, man. Until he seeks out one of the very ones that he drove out. And by the way, isn't that just like sin? We try to drive out sin in our lives, but the very thing that we are tempted by, that we try so hard to drive out, is the thing that gets us. I've seen that in my own life, in the lives of others. Sometimes the people who are most adamant about a certain kind of sin, most upset about it, preach, you know, most vocally about it, that tends to be the one that they themselves struggle the most with. Well, I think about the story and wonder how Saul got to this place, that he would actually go to a medium or a spiritist, to the very people that he drove out, now he's going there. How did he get here? Let's break down the story and consider the heart of Saul's sin problem. To begin with, I'm going to give you a couple things to jot down. Saul has an illegitimate inquiry. We begin with an illegitimate inquiry, and it's not inquiring of the medium. It's Saul's inquiry of the Lord. Watch this in verse 6. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by the dreams or by the urim or by prophets. And Saul said to his servant, Seek for me a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there's a woman who is a medium at Endor. Now, there seems to be a contradiction here. Many of you know that in 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, there is a repeat in 1 and 2 Chronicles. Chronicles will come back, and when we get to Chronicles, we're going to see a lot of these same stories repeated on purpose. The Lord wants us to hear them again. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13, it says the following. And compare this. Go ahead and be looking at verse 6 in 1 Samuel 28. And compare this to what is written in 1 Chronicles 10. Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord, because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep. And also because he asked the counsel of a medium making inquiry, and did not inquire of the Lord. Wait a minute. Here in verse 6 it says that Saul inquired of the Lord. Do we have a translation error? Is there a contradiction? 1 Samuel 28.6 Saul inquired of the Lord. 1 Chronicles 10 verse 14 Saul did not inquire of the Lord. So what's the deal? Did he or did he not? One place says he did. The other place says he didn't. People love things like this who are trying to disprove Scripture. Oh, it's a contradiction. No, it's not a contradiction in the least. There are two things that undermine Samuel's inquiry that is truly a lack of inquiry. It's truly an illegitimate inquiry. And the two things are, number one, lack of relationship, and number two, lack of repentance. Saul inquires of the Lord, but let me ask you this. If I say, good food, good meat, good Lord, let's eat, have I inquired of the Lord? Have I entered into a prayerful relationship with God? Have I truly acknowledged the Lord? Or am I more concerned about the potatoes? Where is my heart? Gang, prayer is not a lot of words. It is a long walk. Prayer is about relationship. It's not about getting your 30 seconds in with God for the day. And our misunderstanding about prayer is just that. That we spend short little snippets, bite-sized pieces of prayer... Throughout the day or or through the week or we think, wow, I haven't prayed in a long time. Prayer is your relationship with God. It is your walk with Him. It is the tendency to be in conversation with Him over the long haul, constantly, through the day. Not just those times when you remember it. 
prayer, if I could put it in a human sense, prayer is like the relationship that I have with my wife as we are in the home together and working together and taking care of things together. We spent the whole day together yesterday doing a lot of different work around the house in relationship, talking about this, that, and the other. Where do you want this bed to be moved? And how do you want Corey's closet to be laid out? And what, what do you want to happen over here? And we're talking and we're in communion and in relationship together. And prayer is that way. We miss it. When we think that, oh man, it's, it's been a long time. Okay, okay. Um, Lord, thanks for this and help me with that and see you next time. <laughs> Prayer is relationship and Saul doesn't have it. The Lord had removed his Holy Spirit from Saul. Saul was not walking with the Lord. The fact that he would go to, even the fact that he would go to the Lord in the first place, gang, it is an illegitimate inquiry because it's not about rattling off a wish list. It's about relationship. But listen to this. It's also about a lack of repentance. How many people in the world do you know talk about praying for things who don't even have a relationship with the Lord at all? Who don't even claim to be Christians? You've seen the movie Bruce Almighty, probably many of you. Revan Almighty. And it never even comes up in either one of these movies whether or not these guys are believers in Jesus Christ. That's, that's beside the point. The cultural feeling in our country is, hey, you got a problem, you can pray. Anybody can pray. Anybody can talk to God, no big deal. Just say, hey God, I need some help with this. Great. Someone gets sick. Someone gets a disease of some kind. We're praying for it. Oh, great, thanks, because I could use those prayers. But there is a lack of repentance in the heart of Saul. And hear me on this. I truly believe this. Prayer without relationship and especially without repentance will fall on deaf ears. Prayer without repentance is not heard by the Father. A question came up years ago in my ministry, in youth ministry. Does the Lord hear the prayer of a sinner? Does the Lord listen to someone who is not walking in relation? Now you and I, granted, we're sinners. We're sinners who have Jesus Christ in our lives. If in fact you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you're walking with Jesus. You're one of His own. Yes, we sin and we fail. But He does hear our prayers because we walk in relationship and we walk in repentance before the Lord. But does the Lord hear the prayer of someone who doesn't? Someone just walking along, dealing with life. Does he hear, if you get me out of this, I'll go to church. Does he hear, take us to the Super Bowl. You know, does the Lord hear even Jesus take the wheel? The Carrie Underwood song, you know, it's all about this woman driving along, getting into an accident, going, oh, Jesus take the wheel. Well, does he hear that? Does the Lord hear the prayer of an unrepentant heart? There's one prayer that I believe that the Lord hears from a non-Christian person just one and it's a sinner's prayer and I base this on Luke chapter 18 verse 10 two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee the other a tax collector the Pharisee was praying this to himself God I thank you but I'm not like other people swindlers unjust and adulterers or even like this tax collector I fast twice a week I pay tithes of all I get but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast and saying God be merciful to me the sinner God I repent Father forgive me Lord I am so sorry this prayer he hears I don't believe he hears any of the others. 
And here is the prayer of a repentant heart. Jesus said, I tell you, the tax collector went to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Does the Lord, you're telling me he doesn't hear prayers of people who aren't Christians, who aren't believers? He does not listen to the prayer of an unrepentant heart. This is where Saul is. Saul inquired of the Lord, and the Lord did not answer him. And in Chronicles it says, Saul didn't inquire of the Lord. What's, what's the balance there? How do we get away from that contradiction? The reality is God, Saul didn't inquire of the Lord because he didn't come with repentance. He was concerned just for future telling. He went to the Lord in the same way he went to the medium. He just wanted to know what to do. But he was not concerned about a relationship with Jesus. Now, I struggle with this. I know what I'm saying here. I, mean, I know this just kind of raises the issue of... Boy, so God draws a, draws a dividing line and you've got to come to Him re- with repentance and if you don't, He's not listening. Is that what you're saying, Rick? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'll admit that I could be wrong. And if you disagree with me, you could be wrong. One of us is not going to be right here. But the bottom line is that cultural Christianity, my friends, will not save you. One of the most disturbing and upsetting things to me as a pastor is knowing that in churches across America this morning there are people sitting there who are unsaved but think they are saved. How do I know? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? If you do, don't worry about it. You're fine. But there are many who are cultural Christians. They go to church because that's what you do. And yet there is no faith. And there has never been any repentance before the Lord saying, Look, I am a sinner. And I need grace. And without your grace and forgiveness, Lord, I don't have a hope. I am sorry for the sin in my life. Sitting in a church or a barn like this on occasion will not guarantee your name in the book of life. And the occasional Christian phrase or feigned prayer goes unheard when it comes from an unrepentant heart. But here's the good news. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Or as the King James says, among whom I am the chief. Paul says, I am the chief sinner, that's me. But God came to save the sinner. John 3.16 God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through Him. And by the way, if you are talking to a friend or a family member or a neighbor who is not a Christian who doesn't believe in Jesus you don't go to them and go Hey, by the way, I just learned this morning in church that your prayers are not heard by God and you're going to hell. So have a nice day. You say to that person You express to that person that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. And repentance is not this horrible thing. In fact, the Bible tells us repentance is refreshing. You Christians, you understand that. You Bible students, you know that. What What better feeling is there than to go before the Lord and say... I lay it out before you. I'm sorry. You know what I've done. And I apologize. And I repent of it. I mean, repentance, the word, you know, it's just turning around. It's turning around. I was going this direction. And that's away from you, Lord. But I want to go your direction. To you, Lord. I repent. Acts 3.19 says, Repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And there's only one reason not to repent in your life. One reason alone. Rebellion. Because repentance 
cleans the slate in the eyes of God. You repent, you're clean. You repent, you come to me, I got you covered. Why wouldn't you do that? Because I don't want to have anything to do with him. Rebellion. Does God hear the prayer of a sinner, just one, the prayer of repentance? I'm sorry, Lord, and I'm coming back. So it was a, an illegitimate an illegitimate inquiry. But now, Saul's not getting answers. So he makes an illicit invocation. An illicit invocation. Verse 8, Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes and went and two men with him. And they came to the woman, interesting, by night. And he said, conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why then are you laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? And Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Even though knowing, as Saul must have known, that punishment would come for this type of thing, because God said it was detestable. It's an absolute violation of the commands. But Saul, as he's done before, is using spiritual language, though he is not a spiritual man. Oh, the Lord will not harm you in any way. By the Lord, I I swear this. You hear people in our culture say, I swear to God. And they're not swearing to God. They're blaspheming the name. An illicit invocation. And the woman said, Well, who shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. Saul seeks out a witch. Even though, as I said before, he's already cleared spiritism from the land. And some of the harshest critics of particular sins are the ones who have or still do struggle the most with those very sins. But the story goes on. Interestingly, verse 12, the woman saw Samuel and paid attention to this. She cried out with a loud voice. The word there is literally shrieked. <laughs> she shrieked because she freaked. She shrieked with a loud voice. Which is her, that's kind of a witchy thing to do, isn't it? Witches are kind of known for that. Anyway, that's what she did. And with a loud voice, the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he's wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground, and he did homage. Here's the question. Was it? Was it Samuel? Was this Samuel that was called up here? Man, this is one of the tough ones. I've spent a lot of time thinking about, and again, I'm going to say to you, you need to be convinced in your own mind what's going on here. I will give you my opinion, but I could be wrong. I don't think so, but I could be. Is this legitimately Samuel? Some believe it's a demonic impersonation, which is certainly possible. We've already read Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. His demons can put on disguise. And in fact, I had a conversation a couple of years ago with a lady who, who said that she had believed she had seen a, a, a previously dead uncle had seen his ghost, that he had come and spoken to her. And she, and she had just come out of a study. We were talking about this very story, and she said... Well, then is it, I mean, what about ghosts? Is it possible that I saw my deceased uncle? According to scripture, it's not possible. Because once a person is dead, they're dead. Dead as a doornail, as Charles Dickens would say. Once that has happened, the spirit no longer can return and have access back here. Some of you may have heard of family members or friends. Some of you yourselves may even say, well, yeah, but I, I think I saw a ghost of my dearly departed. If you saw a ghost of your dearly departed, Chances are very good 
that it was a demon in disguise. Because we know the demons have the ability to impersonate and to disguise themselves. Is that what's going on here? I don't think so. Personally, I think this was Samuel. And let me give you some reasons why I think that it was Samuel. Why I think that God in this rare instance actually allowed Samuel himself in spirit to come back up. Why would you say that? Number one, notice the reaction to Samuel. Verse 12, the witch saw Samuel and she shrieked. Like I said, she shrieked because she freaked. This witch was not expecting to see this. This was a surprise to her. Now, is that because she was a charlatan? Probably. She's probably just one of what so many palm readers or mediums are. They're, they're fakes. They're playing a game. They, they've learned how to find things out about you or about your family or about what you want to know. And, and by asking certain questions, and they can then start to paint pictures and, and deceive. And it's entirely likely that's exactly what she was. Either a complete fake or the other possibility is that she was in the business of channeling a certain demon that she was familiar with and this was not that demon. Whatever the case, this witch was shocked when this persona, when this Samuel came up out of the ground. She shrieked. And she realized in that moment that this is Saul. She got it. What does Saul do? He falls face down in reverence and it tells us that he knew. Verse 14. Saul knew that it was Samuel. Well, yeah, but Saul could have just been deceived. Possibly, but second thing to notice, not just the reaction, but notice the robe of Samuel. The word robe in verse 14 is interesting. In the Hebrew, it's ma'il. And ma'il is literally translated mantle. Jim, it's one of your favorite words. Mantle. It's not just any old robe that's being worn here. The word ma'il specifically describes the type of robe that the priests or the prophets would wear. It was a robe, by the way, that Saul himself would be very familiar with. Strangely familiar with. Back in 1 Samuel 15, verse 26, Samuel had said to Saul, You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, you remember this? Saul seized the edge of his robe, his ma'il, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. Saul knew that robe. He knew that robe very well. And when this witch described Samuel, this, this man coming up out, this older man, wearing the ma'il, into Saul, he was sure of who it was. But finally, and here's the real reason, the main reason why I think it was actually Samuel and not some kind of impersonation. The reference of Scripture. I can't get by this, gang. I can't get by the fact that in verse 15 it says, Then Samuel said to Saul... The word doesn't say, then this, this ghost said to Saul. The word doesn't say, then this, this uh, impersonation of Samuel said to Saul. The word doesn't kind of dance around. The word says specifically, Samuel said to Saul. And further down it will say it again, that it is Samuel speaking here. And you probably by now know that I take the simple-minded approach. If it's in the Bible, and I take it literally. If the Bible says it, I believe it. And what the Bible tells me here very specifically in verse 15 is Samuel said to Saul, the Bible tells me so. The best and most scriptural explanation for anything is a literal one unless the Bible tells you otherwise. 
If the word declares what you're being told here is a parable or a picture or a metaphor, then you accept it as such. And we, in the Revelation study, went through this many times where John will be talking about something and he'll say, now, the devil, or he'll say the dragon, which, by the way, is Satan, he'll explain himself. Other times he doesn't. Other times he says, you know, I saw this, this particular thing happening or that particular thing happening. And he doesn't explain it away. He says, this is what's going to happen. And so I accept this, what is exactly going to happen. Saul's illicit invocation is in direct violation of the law of God, which is why I believe the Lord went ahead and sent Samuel to proclaim very clearly, Saul, you've gone the wrong direction. To proclaim even to this to this witch, you don't mess around with things like this. I think after this experience, it probably would have been a good idea for her just to close up shop for fear that Samuel might come back again. It's unique in Scripture. There is no other story in Scripture that is quite like this. There is the transfiguration where Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus on the top of the mountain. But it's glory that they're wrapped in. This is the only instance in all scripture where a man who had died, clearly was dead, comes back up and the robe he's wearing is the same one he wore in life and he is in that state. Not a resurrected, not a glorified Samuel that we see here, but a very human looking Samuel who's still wearing what he was wearing before. And Samuel gives Saul here an ill-fated insinuation. That's number three, an ill-fated insinuation. I had some fun with these words. Verse 15 Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me and no longer answers me, either through prophets or dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may make known to me what I should do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? The Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me. Saul already knew the answer, by the way, to his question. Samuel already told Saul, the kingdom is torn from you, Saul. He's already insinuated, he's already let Saul know, and you are going to die. And this is not going to be a pretty picture. He's already explained these things, but Saul still, he doesn't want to believe it. So he's messing with mediums. The Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to David. Verse 18, as you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you today. And when we get there, you'll see, and it's just two chapters away, when Saul will die and the person who kills him is related distantly to Amalek, who if Saul had wiped him out when God told him to, this person would not have been there to kill Saul. And Samuel goes on, says as you did not obey. Verse 19, Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will, will be with me. In other words, see you soon, Saul. We'll be hanging out tomorrow. Where I am, that's where you're headed. Now wait a minute. If this is Samuel, and Samuel is insinuating that Saul is going to be dead the next day, where is Saul going? He's going to be where Samuel is? Well, then where is Samuel? And where is this place? And these questions come up about what the Bible says about life after death. I, I hear it all the time. And even last week I had two different people saying, what, Now what is, the, what is the Bible? How does it describe what happens when a person dies? What goes on with that? I'm going to give you quickly. How are we doing on time here? Oh, great. I'm going to give you quickly a short primer on death. 
And I've been asked this by enough people, and I, I, I've shared this before. In fact, when we studied Revelation, we did this. But I want to do it again just to be sure that we can clearly see wh- what's the layout of Scripture regarding what happens after we die. It's, it's, it's very interesting. It comes up in this story. <laughs> just like Samuel comes up in this story. So here's, here's the primer on death. Number one, we have what the Old Testament tells us. And the Old Testament describes death as Sheol. You'll see that word. Sometimes some translations in trying to update and, and all that will say hell or, or might even say Hades for the Old Testament. It's Sheol. And that's the Hebrew word speaking of or meaning a place of the dead, a holding place. It's just basically when you die, there you go. And the understanding of the Hebrew people and the understanding given to us in the Hebrew scriptures is very simply when you die, there's a place that you go after you die. That you don't cease to exist. That you go to Sheol. Psalm 16.10 David said, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now he's talking about Jesus prophetically. But he's also talking about himself in that David did have a hope that though he was going to go to Sheol, that there was still a future for him. That God wasn't going to leave him there forever. He would go there to the waiting place and then, I don't know what after that, but I know something, God. I know something, Lord, is going to happen. You're going to do something. You're not going to abandon me there. Psalm 89, 48. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? And so through all those, you know, three, four thousand years, man's understanding, the Hebrew understanding of death was Sheol. You die, you go to the waiting place. What are you waiting for? I don't know. Abraham was waiting to be resurrected back into the land. He truly believed when he bought the cave in Mamre, he bought it because he thought, okay, I'm going to buy this and we'll be buried here. So when I'm resurrected, I just walk out of the cave and I'm home. It's perfect. That's why Jewish people today will buy graves, purchase grave sites on the Mount of Olives, which has a massive Jewish cemetery, most expensive place in all Israel to, to purchase a grave site. Why? Because the Old Testament scriptures proclaim rightly that Messiah will return from the Mount of Olives. He will set foot on the Mount of Olives. And so Jewish people, when they die, want to be as close as possible to that happening. Sheol. It's as far as the understanding goes in the Old Testament. You get to the New Testament, and Jesus opens up a window and lets us peek inside. And shows us what Sheol is. I'm going to let you look this up on your own later if you'd like to. Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. It's a parable Jesus tells about a rich man and Lazarus. Now the point of the parable is, is not the, the substance, I mean the point is something different, but in the reading of the parable you get this picture of Hades, which is just the Greek word for Sheol, the place of the dead, and Jesus explains something that we have not seen before in scripture, that Hades has three parts to it really, paradise, torment, and a vast chasm in between. That when you die and you go to this waiting place, Sheol or Hades, whatever you want to call it, when you die and go there, there is a place of torment. And for anyone who has died outside of faith in the Lord, anyone who has died with a heart of rebellion, with a lack of repentance, they go to wait in torment. Anyone who dies in faith in the Lord, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Samuel. And this is where Samuel would have come from. Paradise. But in between, torment and paradise, though you can apparently see across this chasm because the rich man calls across to Lazarus on the other side and to Abraham on the other side, you cannot cross it. It is impenetrable. You can't get from one side to the other. 
Jesus said to the repentant thief on the cross in Luke 23, 43, Truly, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me. Where, Jesus? In paradise. Paradise side of Hades. I'm taking you to the good waiting place. But then we learn more. The New Testament tells us that after Jesus' death, a completely new thing happened. In fact, in that period of three days between when Jesus died and He resurrected, something amazing happened. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8 says, When He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives. What? When Jesus ascended back to heaven, He didn't go alone. He led a host of people who at one point had been captive. Where? I submit to you on the paradise side of Sheol. On the paradise side of Hades. Because when Jesus died, forgiveness was given. Reconciliation, as Jim said, was given. Redemption was now possible. The blood had paid. Abraham, remember that Paul said this about Abraham. He was a man of faith and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham believed and he died in that belief, believing in God, trusting in the Lord, but he couldn't go to be with the Lord because the debt had not yet been paid, but God gave Abraham a credit, a coupon if you will, which would be a great coupon to have. Here's your coupon, Abraham, you believe in me, Jesus hasn't come yet, Jesus hasn't died, but here's your coupon, you hang on to that because it's your ticket into heaven when redemption comes. So where was Abraham all this time? Paradise. Waiting in Sheol, but paradise in Sheol, according to Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus that has Abraham in it. And so when Jesus died, again, he's, Ephesians 4 8, he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And Paul says, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth, which the Jews understood the lower parts being Hades? They thought about it going down. They thought about somewhere, and they don't, didn't understand the earth's core and all that like we do now, but they thought about it being going into the lower parts. It says, He who descended, going down, is also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. So this host of captives is anyone who died, anyone who was on the paradise side of Hades who died in faith in the Lord. Enoch would have been there. Seth. The third son of Adam and Eve, who were told was a believer, was one of those who called upon the name of the Lord. Any of the, the fathers of the faithful, Moses, would have at that point been set free. In other words, Jesus, in the three days between his death and his resurrection, he effectively shut down the paradise side of Hades, leading the souls of the faithful home to be with the Lord. And now, and this is the best part of all of it, now, since that first Easter Sunday, when a person dies in Christ, the spirit doesn't go to a waiting place. The spirit doesn't soul sleep, as some people believe, rest in peace, you're not resting. The spirit at that point goes to be with the Lord. Friends, family members, loved ones who have passed away in Jesus Christ are with Jesus Christ. The Spirit goes to be with the Lord. Not to Sheol, not to Hades paradise, but to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 6 says, We walk by faith and not by sight. And we're of good courage, I say, and rather prefer to be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord. Because, Paul says, that's the deal. If I'm absent from the body... I'm home with the Lord. Where's my body? I don't know, in the grave or cremated or whatever you did with it. But my spirit, which is who I am, by the way, my spirit is with Jesus. I go directly. Why? Because repentance has been made. That the redemption has been paid for. 
The path is cleared. I can go and be with Him. Paul says this, Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's not gain to go to the holding tank. It's gain to be with Jesus. He says, if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart and be with Christ. For it's so much better. And it would be better for Paul because his life was not great. It was hard. And he knew his labor was fruitful for the kingdom and good and important and God had a role for him. But man, Paul, Paul would be a man, the Apostle Paul, who would lay on his bed at night and just go, Soon, Lord, I can't wait to be with you soon. And then he'd get up the next morning and he'd, he'd get about the, the work of the Lord. He didn't lollygag around. He was fighting the good fight. He was doing everything he could for the Lord and for the kingdom. But in those quiet moments, I can just see Paul going, Oh, that's going to be good. That's going to be great. And he wasn't talking about Hades or Sheol. He was talking about being with Jesus. There is a day, my friends, fast approaching when death itself will be powerless against those who are alive in Christ. And I love this verse. Jesus, in talking to uh, Mary and Martha about Lazarus, he says in John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. Now listen to this. And everyone who lives and believes in me will not die. Will never die. Do you believe this? Do you understand what Jesus is saying there? There are people who will be alive at His coming and will never taste death. Sign me up. That's where I want to be. Rick, how do you want to die? I don't. Well, yeah, but if you had to die, what would be your choice? I just want to fly. (laughs) I don't want to die. I want to fly. Great t-shirt idea. I want to fly, not die. Anyway... In Saul's case, he is headed for Sheol, and it is unlikely he's going to the paradise side. I'm going to give you one more little thing, and this is free. You don't have to pay for it this morning. One little side note. If you go and you read 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 17, 18, talking about the rapture, and that's where we get the word rapture, and it's all, it's all right there, where it says we are caught up. It's very interesting, the language in that chapter about the spirit and the body. Both are referred to by Paul in that chapter. The Lord will bring with Him the souls of those who have fallen asleep, the souls of those who have died, the spirits who are with Him, He'll bring with Him. He, he can only bring them with Him if they're already with Him. So if you die, your spirit is already with the Lord, and it says on that grand day of the rapture, He will bring with Him the spirits of those who have fallen asleep. And then a few verses down it says, but listen, the dead in Christ will rise. Well, wait a minute. If the dead in Christ are already with him, how are the dead in Christ going to rise? If he's going to bring them with him, how are they going to rise? The wording is specific there. The spirits are with him and will come. The dead, that word is necros, which means the corpses <laughs> will rise. The corpses will rise. The spirits will come with the Lord. And in an instant, they will be reunited and glorified. Does this sound a little wild to some of you? I'm not making this stuff up. Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Go look. I wasn't going to do this, but I can't help it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Just listen very carefully here. It's important to understand this. Because what's going to happen to you and to me if, if we're alive this morning and Jesus Christ calls us home and we are caught up to be with the Lord, the Bible says in an instant we will be changed. Our spirit that is in our body 
our spirit that's there will still be in our body and our physical temporal bodies will be made instantaneously eternal in the same way that Jesus died and was raised physically he had a bodily resurrection and his body was made eternal his body gang physical was able to do things after his resurrection that he could not do before his death and resurrection like walk through walls like just show up among the apostles and yet we see him eating normal food we see him tangible and touchable but he is in a glorified state and that's the promise to you and to me our physical bodies and this is 1 Corinthians 15 so jot that down 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51-52 Paul says we are temporal our, our perishable must put on the imperishable so God is doing something with spirit and body of those who have already died and he's doing something with spirit and body of those who are alive Watch this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. But if we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Okay, that's very clear. When he comes down and calls us to meet him in the, in the sky, he's bringing with him those who have fallen asleep. Any question about that? Read on. Verse 15, this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, we who are alive and remain will not, until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead, necros, is the Greek word, it means corpse, it means the dead body, the dead in Christ will rise first. So you put that logically together. He's bringing with him the souls of those who fall asleep and the dead in Christ will rise first. Why is he doing that? Because there is a physical resurrection that will make us eternal. Now some of you are going, I don't get a new body. No, you get a new body. But wonderfully, if my reading of Scripture is correct here, and I believe it is wonderfully, this body is going to be transformed into an eternal state. And I'm going to be looking good. And I am absolutely convinced that my brow is going to come down a bit. You know? And the scars are going to kind of go away. And I'm going to look like God intended me to before I came into this sinful world. The, in, the idea of God. And I think my waist probably going to go a little bit in. To, and, and, you know, it's going to, we're going to be perfect. So I don't want any of you to worry if you're looking at yourself going, Oh man, he's going to rework this thing? I'm stuck like this? No, you're not. You're going to be glorified. And it's going to be wonderful. I'll never forget my grandmother, Irene who had really bad arthritis in her knees to the point that toward the end of her life she couldn't walk up and down stairs at all. She just couldn't do it. And when she died, talking to my mom about that and thinking, she is dancing right now. You know? Not her body, her spirit, because her body was in the grave. Well, Rick, I know you're trying to give us a black and white thing. It's awfully simple. I think there's probably more to it. Well, there probably is more to it, but I know that's what the Bible tells us. And I look forward to that day. And I long for it. And it's all because of what Jesus did. I have no idea where we are. Let's get back to it just for a second so we can finish up here. Saul. Saul is headed for Sheol. Where is Saul today? I don't want to make the judgment. But I know he died outside of a relationship with the Lord. 
So my assumption today, my assumption, not my judgment, is that Saul is in shield. Oh, the waiting place, paradise and, and, and torment, right? No, paradise is no more. Because there's no need for a paradise side of Hades. Because now when you die in Christ, your spirit goes immediately, immediately to be with the Lord. And that's good news. Verse 20. Saul immediately fell full length upon the ground and was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. Also there was no strength in him for he had eaten no food all day and all night. The woman came to Saul and saw that he was terrified and said to him, Behold, your maidservant has obeyed you. Then I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to your words which you spoke to me. Now also please listen to the voice of your maidservant. Let me set a piece of bread before you that you may eat and have strength when you go on your way. Now what's she doing? She wants him out of her house. <laughs> She's not a nice woman. She just wants him out of the tent. Look, let me give you some food. Let's sit on your way. Verse 23, But he refused and said, I will not eat. Okay. However, the servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to them. So he arose from the ground and sat on the bed, and the woman had a fattened calf in the house. She quickly slaughtered it. I don't know how you do that quickly. Well, hang on, I'll, I'll whip us up something. Where's that cow? Amazing. And, and to make matters a little longer, she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. So we're going to have a quick meal. I'll be in the kitchen. <laughs> she didn't have a bread maker. It, it, it goes to show you, by the way, how much slower the world was in those days than it is now. And I kind of wish I had lived back then. We had an evening last night with Rod and Barb. It was great because it was slow. Everything, Cheryl and I had been running like chickens with our heads cut off all day long. And we got down to Rod and Barb's house. And they hadn't even cooked dinner yet. I went there to eat. And it wasn't even prepared yet. But it took the whole evening. And by the time we left, it was just like, ah. Because it was slow. It was slow. We need that. I, I, I hope sometime in the next couple of weeks of the holiday season, when you get all your silly shopping done and all the stuff, and you know, I hope you have some days that are just slow. And just rest. Just rest in the Lord. Man, I'm getting you know, caught off. Let, let me get back. So, so that happened, and she baked and cooked, and she brought it before Saul, and watched this in his service, and they ate, and they arose and went away that night. And it is significant that this whole thing happened at night it happened in the darkness this is what happened now it, it, it did remind me a little bit of another man who went to seek counsel at night Nicodemus when he went to see Jesus and we're told he went to see him at night why did he do that because at that point Nicodemus wasn't really a man of faith and he didn't want to be seen so he went to do this in secret and that's the problem with night that's the problem with darkness is things are done in secret Notice in the news how often murders happen during the day versus at night. How often robberies and theft and vandalism and violence happens at night as opposed to during the day. I'm telling you this because darkness is what is promised for the last days. And darkness is fitting for Saul's last days as well. The next time we see Saul will be his last. He will exit history killed in battle, his head cut off, decapitated, and his body hung up on a wall in a place called Betshan. It's a dark end, following a dark consultation in the dead of night. The Thursday night before Jesus' crucifixion, he sat there with his apostles. You remember the story? And they broke bread together. 
They shared the Passover meal, a very, very significant thing that Jesus did in, in turning the Passover into what we share. Instituting something that would be a, a memorial device, something to remind us of His death and burial and resurrection consistently. And in that setting, Judas is there and Jesus said, The one for whom I dip the morsel and give it to him, he will betray me. John 13 verse 27 says, After the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. Do you realize Judas was not demon possessed? Judas was Satan possessed. How horrifying is that? Jesus then said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had, or no one knew what purpose Jesus had said that. Some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying, Buy some things we need for the rest of the feast. Or else that maybe you should give something to the poor. But listen to this, very telling. Verse 30 of John 13. After receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. John, when he writes his gospel, is very sensitive to pictures as he paints it. And yes, it was night. That is when it happened. But it was also night in the soul of Judas. It was dark. Later that same night, Jesus would say the following to the Jewish leaders, Luke 22:53. This is your hour, the power of darkness. We read a ghost story this morning. It is a story of darkness. It is a story of danger it is an unsettling story it is not a story that ends like Scrooge dancing around and saying the ghost did it in one night it's a story that ends with Saul absolutely terrified and dead on the next battle it seems to me that the world in which we live seems to be darker and darker and I don't say that to be negative but I believe the darkness is thickening Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2, however, tells us that the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. An illuminating invitation. Isaiah 8 verse 19 says, When they say to you, consult the mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? God is saying, why would you go somewhere else? Come to me. Calling up the dead to get information when you can come to me. It's necromancy, it's darkness, but Jesus is light. And I'll tell you this, if you want to hear from the dead, if you would like to call up the dead and talk to someone who was dead but is now alive and can give you the truth, check this out. Revelation 1.17, John said, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me. He said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. There is only one who has died who is worth consulting, the one who died and yet lived, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow. Lord, we praise you as the only answer in this world. We praise you as the only light that shines in the darkness. We praise and worship you, Jesus, as the one who died and yet lives again. We praise you as the one who has invited us to come to you with open hearts and repentance and be refreshed and saved. We praise you because of the promise that you will alter everything about us and that you will make for us an eternity. 
that surely the perishable will put on the imperishable in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Lord Jesus, we praise you for all of this and we thank you for your great love. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's have the band come back up here. I, I realized the other day that um, you know, every morning we offer an opportunity, every Sunday we offer an opportunity for people to be saved, to give their lives to Jesus. And if you haven't done that, um, and you'd like to this morning, I just want to invite you as soon as we're done to come talk to me. Okay? Or talk to one of our elders, or even grab someone and say, Hey, you know how, how, how do I do this Jesus save thing? <laughs> But there's something that, that goes along with that. I haven't talked about it in a while, and I realized that just uh, just yesterday. And that's the idea of being baptized. And what's really interesting to me is that during the winter months, we tend to see a whole lot less baptisms down in the pond. And I just, I don't understand why, but we there are less of them. However, I want to encourage you, if you have never been baptized... And when I say baptized, I'm talking the full meaning of the word, which the Greek word means to be immersed. If you've never been immersed in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I invite you to do it. And I invite you to ask me today, and I am willing to go into that water with you, with my waiters. But I encourage you, brothers and sisters, again, if you've never done that, and maybe you've put it off because you're like, what? Do I need to? I'm not sure if I should. I'll tell you who to talk to. Talk to Larry. Who was baptized when? Was it just last year? In August. Yeah, I picked a good month. <laughs> Ask Larry why at this point in his life he chose to be baptized. You'll get a great answer. You'll get the right one. But if you haven't been, you need to be. And Jesus invites you to be, and we can do it today, and I know it will be cold, but he would be so pleased. So think about that if you haven't done that before.